Loving our community well while reaching the nation. Sounds like a far impossible thing to do that you could do both, but we live in that tension. Okay, it's a dual mandate. It's not one or. It's not either or. It's both and. We want to love our community well. We live here. We work here. We play here. We study here. We do life here. We're going to do that. But we also are going to be about the nations because that is a mandate. We're going to, you know, come to this Christmas time. You talk about family. You talk about fun. You talk about food. We do a lot of things. And, you know, for some people, though, Christmas is not family and fun and food. It's just another day to try to survive. And I want us to to just peel back some words today that are not in our Christmas vocabulary. They're not going to be in a carol that we'll sing. They'll not be a part of a movie that we watch. But I want you to think about the word forgotten, neglected, mistreated, longing, surviving. I want want you to put those into your Christmas vocabulary this year. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer. I'm not trying to be the negative Ned up here. I'm not trying to, to send you into a dark spot or anything like that. But I want you to think about words that some people will go through the Christmas season and they will feel forgotten. They will go through the, the rest of their life and they will, they will feel neglected because of something that happened in their life. Somebody that dropped the ball when they should have picked up the ball and taken care of something. Somebody will feel mistreated. For some of you in this room, you have been mistreated in a relationship. And because of that, you live with that scar, that wound every single day. But there are some people that live with every one of those. And there's a longing in their soul and they can't get past it and they can't figure it out. How do I get to the deep parts of my soul and find healing? And then others, it's not about, you know, how many gifts are under the tree. It's just about surviving. How can I make it another day? And when we talk about going to the nations and loving our community well, when we talk about this is a dual mandate, this is exactly what we've been about and what we're going to continue to be about. It's about the forgotten drug addict that's, that's living by the tracks in Cape Town. It's talking about the neglected orphan in, in Zambia that's lost its parents to AIDS, their parents to AIDS. It's, it's, it's about the, the, the abused and mistreated women of South Asia that we put our arms around and we love and we keep sending teams year after year. It's about, it's about uh, reaching into the deep longings of a person's soul and helping them find Christ. And we were able to send out this past year on Global Adventures nine teams, 92 people were commissioned from our church, shared the gospel over 800 times in all, on, on our teams. We're trying to get to the longings of people's hearts and try to meet them at a deep, dark spot in their life. And then some... They're just trying to survive. And I want to talk about all of those, but I want to really talk about those who are just trying to survive today. This next year, we're going to be doing much of the same. We're going to continue to go as we've been going, living out that dual mandate, loving our community well, reaching the nations while reaching the nations. We're going to continue to live that out. This next year, we're calling it a year of exploration. 
For many of us, you know, we've been in, Zan- in West Africa for a long time, for 10 years, for a decade. We've been over a decade, and we will continue to support and honor. But that's, that work that we have been a part of is going, is able to be sustainable and move on. And so we're kind of stepping into uh, version 2.0 in that area. But we're going to be exploring around the nations, around the world where we're going. And we really want to go well. And we were, we're praying that God would raise out the, those who go from our church up by 20% this next year. We would send out that many more people. We have 11 different teams or trips planned and to five countries that we've never gone before. We're just exploring, saying, God, where are you at work? How can we join you? How can we be a part of what you're doing? Helping out those who are forgotten, those who are mistreated, those who are neglected, those words that we just talked about, those who are longing, those who are trying to survive. And so part of what, what we're going to do this next Sunday, so I was just preparing you if you're new to Grace Point or you're going to be with us, or you're going to have family members here with us, you can kind of tell them the download. What we're going to do next Sunday is, is, a, is a part of our Christmas uh, time together, which will be at 8, 9, 30, and 11. Say that with me. 8, 9, 30, and 11. You're going to bring your grade school kids in. We're going to have a family worship time together. And in that time together... We're going to take up an offering. It'll be at the very end of the service. There's going to be a lot of other things a part of that gathering. But in that offering, where is it going to go? A third of it is going to go to help our members go around the world to the nations. I don't know of another church who does this, okay? And I'm not trying to blow our horn, but I am patting us on the back. Say, thank you, Grace Point, for what you do and where you go and how, 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 how you're willing to sacrifice. Because we give... 15, 20, we've given up to 25% scholarships to those who are going to the nations. Real money, real cost, airline tickets, hotels, foods, whatever the costs are, we have to pass those on to the individuals going. But we as a church collectively give scholarships to those that are going. And it's pretty awesome whenever you can give out a $600 or an $800 scholarship to somebody who's already making great sacrifices. So that's one third. Another third of it's going to go to our ministry budget, which the best thing I can say about a ministry budget, it's like investing in a mutual fund. Any financial planner will tell you a mutual funds the way to go because you diversify your money. It goes across the, uh, a broad spectrum and so it can handle the ups and downs. Well, when you give to the ministry budget of Grace Point, then it is like going into a kingdom of God mutual fund. It's going to help the kingdom of God across a broad spectrum locally here at home, around the world. It's going to help us in the micro, in the macro. It helps us in, in, in do everything that we're uh, about as Grace Point Church. But the final third, and this is where I'm going to kind of camp today, it's going to help Syrian refugees, 50,000 Syrian refugees that live in Athens, Greece. We're going to come along beside the neglected, the forgotten. We're going to come aside along those who are hurting because they've been mistreated, they're longing, and they just want to survive. And I want to talk about that in in maybe a different light today, but I just want to kind of give you big picture things because when you talk talk about what's going on in the world as far as refugees right now, there are 60 to 65 million refugees around the world. And all these statistics come from UNICEF or BGR, Baptist Global Response, and so that's where you can go and fact check me, okay? So, and the largest producer of refugees in the world today, of those 60 to 65 million that are out there, the largest producer of refugees is Syria. 
And of those 60 to 65 million that are out there, 51% of them are children. Children, babies. Children who can't defend themselves, children who don't know. And in Syria, they've been in a six-year civil war that little, listen to this, half the population has either been killed or been displaced. Not in their homes, not in their places. Another half are still living in war-torn areas. Now, we can talk about the political angles and we can talk about the, what the pundits saying and what the cable news stations are, are trying to portray it as. But listen, we have got to understand that refugees are not terrorists. All right? Again, I'll let you debate. We can debate afterwards if you want. But refugees are humans. They're people. They're forgotten. They're neglected. They're mistreated. They're longing. And they're surviving. And that's what we need to see them as. In fact, today, I want us to gain a different perspective, if you will. I want us to see people differently today. Because I think if we're really going to unpack this and we're really going to understand this through the eyes of the Lord, then we need to understand humanity and not just individuals. And sometimes we need to uh, develop a theology of suffering. And in that theology of suffering, there is tied to that a theology of compassion. And how does God expect to answer in this day and age of suffering? There's so much suffering in the world. Suffering, if there was a really good God out there, then why would he allow so much suffering out there? And part of the reason that we'll unpack today, but also part of it is understanding the heart of compassion that his people are supposed to have. You can't find a probably more clear passage on this, on the theology of suffering and how the church or God's people are to respond than in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 35. Jot it down. You can read it for yourself on your own later on. But here's what it says. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I was a stranger. Remember that word. And you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger? That word stranger is the, is the Greek word zenos, and it, I want you to come, we're going to come back to that word, zenos, at the end of the message, but I just want you to understand, the word for refugee in first century Greek would be this word right here. Stranger, foreigner, alien, person who doesn't belong, isn't where he belongs, isn't where he's from. And what, what was the response? You welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. We see you sick and in prison. And the king will answer, truly I say to you, you did it when you did it to one of the least of these, one of the forgotten. We don't even know their name. You did it to me. We come to our Christmas season. I know we come with food and fun and family. And I know we we talk a lot and we we think about Jesus in, hopefully in there a lot and we have these different perspectives on Jesus, but I want us to see him a little bit different today. You know, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. 
and we should worship that. Jesus is the beginning and the end, and we should believe in that. And Jesus is everything that we sing about and we talk about in Isaiah, the great prophet, whenever he said he's the wonderful counselor, he's the mighty God, he's the everlasting father, he's the prince of peace. We sing about that. I preached on that at Christmas time so many times. I've got five messages from Isaiah on that passage. And I have talked about him being wonderful counsel, and I've talked about him being a mighty God, and I've talked about him being an everlasting father, and I've talked about him being a prince of peace, but I have neglected in 28 years of preaching Christmas messages that I've never talked about Jesus in the way I want to talk about him today. And I'm repenting to you that I did something in injustice. Because yes, he's the great physician, and yes, he's the great teacher, and yes, he's the great healer, and yes... He has so many and so much more, but we need to see Jesus as a refugee because that's exactly what he was. Take your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 2. Very familiar passage of Scripture, one of those that you might even choose to open up on Christmas morning and read together as a family, and I encourage that. You might go over to Luke and read Luke's account. Luke's account's kind of written through the lenses of, of Mary, and Matthew's account's written through the lenses of Joseph. So you get two different accounts, you bring them together. It's a beautiful uh, way to do that. In one of those accounts in Matthew is you have these three, or how, we don't know how many there were, these magi, these wise guys, okay? They come from the east. They come bearing gifts. We we talk about we three kings of Orient are. We sing about that. Well, we don't know if there were three, seven, or 70. We, they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we don't know how many there were. So we just assume because there were three gifts that there were three, but probably very likely there was a whole entourage of people with them. And these people were able to ride into town on their, uh, on their camels and their chariots, and they were able to literally go up to the great King Herod's palace. And immediately... Have a ear with Herod the Great. Think about that. These were not low-lying people. These were high, powerful, influential individual that comes in, come into town. We know this story as a part of the Christmas story. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the day of Herod the king, which Herod? Because there's only about six in the, in the, four in the gospel narratives and two in the, in the Acts narrative. So there's six different Herods in the scripture. So which Herod is this? This is Herod the Great. This is the father, the patriarch of the Herods, of the Herodian dynasty. Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw a star and rose and we've come to worship him. I love that declaration. When Herod heard the, heard the king, uh, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, trouble could mean a, a ton of different things, but I believe, as you'll see in just a moment, that he was troubled because he felt a threat. Others were troubled because they were excited that finally the Messiah has come, troubled in a sense of, oh my gosh, excitement coming on. But Herod himself was troubled because of a threat. Skip on down to verse 7. It says, And Herod summoned the wise men secretly to ascertain and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. 
So they're trying to figure, he's trying to figure out, okay, when did it appear? He's doing the math. Okay, it was nine months ago. It was six months ago because it's very likely Jesus was, a, was, was maybe crawling, maybe walking, maybe toddling along as a child. We don't know exactly how old he was, but because of the events that are going to happen, and you know the events that are going to happen, is that Herod's going to order two, every child below two in the city of Bethlehem to be killed. Very likely he was somewhere under two. I'm sure he gave himself a margin of error in there. But now let's go to verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem, say, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. That was all smoke and mirrors, bro. All right. Because verse 12 happens. It's the second dream of three dreams that we see in the first two chapters of the book of Matthew. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. They went out the back door. They escaped because they didn't want to go back to Herod and tell him, oh, we know where he's at. We've been with him. They knew from the angels of heaven that that was not a safe thing. Now, let's unpack this because most people, when they're reading the Christmas story, when they get to the three kings, they kind of stop. They land the plane really quickly there and they move on to another narrative or they move on. But there's so much more. In those early infant toddler years of Jesus when Jesus was still certainly considered a baby, certainly considered a child, that there was some things that were going on that Jesus was born into a hostile environment, into an unhealthy situation. And I want us to unpack. Here's again my prayer. My prayer is that we will get a new perspective, a new perspective on what a refugee is. And we will see them differently today. Three lessons from Jesus the refugee. One, lesson one. Refugees just choose life. It's all about life and death. Life and death. Or death. We got to understand there's a difference between a refugee and an immigrant. And actually, it was somebody who worked with works with the uh, the fifty thousand refugees in uh, Athens that helped me understand this recently in a in an extended um, FaceTime uh, conversation. Whenever he said, "Listen, you got to understand, immigrants want a better life. Refugees just want life." Immigrants want to move from this country to that country because there's a better life. There's education opportunities over there. There's job opportunities over there. There's something that compels them that they want to immigrate from here to there. But a refugee is a person that's being thrust out to their safety of their own existence, that they must get out, they must get away, or their life, their family's life is in jeopardy and is on the line. Let's go back. Let's read verse 13, because this is the part of the story that I've missed so much of the time. Verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is dream number three in the chapter. Rise and take a child. Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and say these words to destroy him. There was a mission that Herod was on. 
And it wasn't to bring worship to Jesus. It wasn't to bring some more gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It wasn't any of that. It was absolutely, I want to kill the threat to my, to my own reign and my own rule. I'm going to step in now. Can you imagine for a moment, just enter in. Again, I want you to keep entering into the life of Jesus, entering into the life of Joseph, entering into the life of Mary. I mean, they have gone in such a juxtaposition, some herky-jerky up and down. They have gone from, okay, Mary, you're pregnant. Oh, that's exciting. Not. Okay. Oh, but you got the Son of God. Okay, that is exciting. Okay. And then now how am I going to explain that to my 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 betrothed or my my, my fiancé? That had to be a downer. And then, and then once he understood through a dream that, it was, oh, you, you're going to be actually the stepfather to Jesus, the God of the universe. Okay, that's, a, that's an upper. Okay, so you've got this ups and downs that they're going on. And then they go in this impoverished lifestyle and they give birth in a dirty, stinking manger. They didn't have a, a, a midwife. They didn't have a... a uh, they didn't have any kind of uh, a beautiful uh, hospital room waiting on them. They didn't even have a hotel room waiting on them. You know the story. Born in a manger. And then they were so poor. The newer translations said that they wrapped him in strips of cloth. They didn't even have enough of a cloth to wrap up a baby. So they had to take strips of cloth and piece it together to swaddle him as a baby. The inhumanity of his birth, the poverty of his birth, the, the mistreatment of his birth, the neglect of his birth. Though it was not on them, it was merely the situation they were in. It was horrific. And then the excitement that the child is born. The excitement that the, that the angels have declared, the shepherds have come and the, the, the wise men have come. You know, so you got this ups and downs. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, Joseph is told by an angel, you need to get up. And you need to get out. You need to run for your life. And if we don't think Herod or anybody would be, do that to innocent little babies, then we need to rethink about it. Herod had his wife and three of his sons personally murdered. He had a couple of them murdered at the time of his death so that there would be mourning in the land because nobody was going to mourn for Herod the Great whenever he died. So to make sure that there was tears and crying and, and weeping in the streets, they made sure there was other people dying so that Herod could receive vicariously, if you will, some sort of, of mourning for his life. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all of the region who were two years and under. So this guy is a madman. So whenever you think of Mary and Joseph fleeing in the night, I want you to think of they are fleeing for their life. It is a matter of life or death that they're having to deal with. When you talk to a refugee who's been in Syria for six years, who's trying to, trying to survive and trying to get by, we need to understand that it is a matter of life and death upon them. I was speaking with one of our partners that we support through our ministry budget and this past week, and he was telling me about in Mosul, Iraq, how they were going around and identifying Christians, and they were writing this Arabic noon which stood for Nazarene. 
because they were trying to say, everyone who lives in this house, they declare themselves Christians. And many of y'all have seen this or heard of this before, but whenever you actually hear somebody who's talked to somebody who's actually lived through this, you kind of perk up and you pay attention. And so he's downloading this story to me of this man getting this written on the front of his house. And inside was this believing family where it was his father and his family and, and, and this son who was a dentist. And he was there whenever the ISIS troops came by and they gathered up the, 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 the people in the house, all the men in the house, and they took them away. And he was there, this dentist's young son. He was there when his father was killed. And this young believing man said, hey, I think I got something I can help you. He was a dentist. And what he started to do is he started prepare, he started cleaning the teeth and fixing the teeth of the ISIS soldiers. And what ends up happening is the commander basically looks at this dentist and says, okay, you've taken care of everyone. Your services are no longer required. You're now going to die. And if it were not for his kindness, and by the way, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, then the other soldiers around him that stood up for him and protected him against the commander helped him slip out of Mosul and get to Jordan where now he is in a refugee camp fixing the teeth, cleaning the teeth of other refugees in that camp. My friends, when you hear stories like this, it becomes very real and very personal. And I, listen, I don't know that person's name and I'll never see them this side of heaven, but I just look at them and go, oh my goodness, you have gone through life and death and I'm trying to decide on what I'm going to wear today. I, 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 can't even, I can't even identify with this. And I'm thankful to God that somebody let their light continue to shine, whether they're with their enemies or they're, they're in the midst of refugees. They put names and people above any prejudices. When we realize a refugee is just simply trying to live. Number two, refugees simply want to survive. Very similar to live. But where we focus on thriving, they focus on surviving. When we focus on at Christmas time, am I going to get the iPhone 10 or am I going to be stuck with this, this dinosaur of an iPhone 6S? And we suffer if we don't get what we want. I make light of that. Well, I make very true and very real is that these people that have fled for their lives, they're living in a humanitarian situation that as we've been trained in humanitarian work, there are phases of humanitarian work. One is that relief phase. It's the most critical phase. It's the life or death phase. It's the, it's the phase whenever uh, a natural disaster, a famine, um, it could be po- political persecution. It could be like the man from Mosul, it could be just simply politi- any, any kind of persecution where life and, and limb is on the line and you have to survive. You have to get out. Then there, behind that, hopefully once you get into safety, then there's a development phase where you can actually pour in, develop education and medical systems and, and structures and means uh, to happen. But listen, when you've talked to people who have gone through the survival, I've got to live, you hear a difference in their voice. 
I can remember riding in the car with Jimmy Hooten who was telling me about the time that he and his wife were woke up in the middle of the night. Missionaries in Uganda, during Idi Amin, whenever he came to power and he had national believers come to him in the middle of the night and say, listen, we know your name is on a list to be killed tomorrow morning. You've got to get out now. And they had to leave everything get into their car and drive overnight. And Jimmy never drives at night. Drive over through the bush of Africa to get into the nation of Kenya in the night. But if it wasn't enough for Jimmy, let's talk about David and Janet Hooten, their son and daughter, who were in Rwanda, who recently told us the story. Michael and uh, Spencer and uh, Matthew Martin and myself told us the story. And then we had to pull the story out of them because they were in Rwanda whenever that genocide happened. He's never seen the movie Rwanda. He said, I don't want to see the movie Rwanda. I lived Rwanda. And he talked about how going back to his house after escaping in the night and getting out out of the country and for his life and coming back after political stability was, was brought back in and going back to their house and seeing bullet holes throughout their house and feces throughout their house, and the door handles and everything stripped naked of that house. And that's where they were just a few hours before that happened. My friends, I'm telling you, when you talk about refugees, you're talking about people who just want to survive. And it's very inhumane. Look at look, 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 look verse, verse 14. And he arose and he took his child and his a mother, that would be Mary, by night and departed to Egypt. Forty miles south of Bethlehem is the, it was the, was the boundary line of, of Herod the Great. And, and 40 miles south, they were crossing into Egypt and they were in safety, in security. It, not, not beautiful, not awesome, not wonderful, but they were out of harm's way. Now, can you imagine for a moment the life of Jesus And the very first memories of his childhood. Think about this. Was it when he was a baby, when the Magi came, the shepherds came? He didn't remember the stall and the manger in Bethlehem. But very likely, he escaped somewhere between the age of birth and two years of age because that was the span of time in which Herod was going to kill every one of the kids. And then you stack on top of that that it was about... 86 when Herod died, Herod the Great died, they're supposed to stay in Egypt. So somewhere between four, five, six years of age, and when we get down to those, uh, those individual years, you can't pin, pin it exactly, but literally the very earliest memories in the childhood of the Savior of the world who walked and lived in the incarnate Word of God on this earth were this, I am a refugee. Live the life of a refugee. Jesus is a refugee in a refugee first century camp, forgotten, neglected, mistreated, longing simply to survive. When you, when you go into survival mode, and this list was made, we didn't make this list, it was uh, BGR workers in a- Athens with the 50,000 uh, uh, people that are there as refugees. And they made us this list and they gave us a shopping list, so to speak. They said, this is what, if your church gives to this offering, then, then this is what you will buy. Now look at this list. $60 will buy a pair of shoes. I got a challenge for you this afternoon. Go home and count the number of shoes you own in your closet. I have kind of a shoe fetish thing. 
Lori counted my shoes for me. 26 pairs of shoes. All right? Go count yours. See if you can beat that. I'm not saying give up your pairs of shoes. But this survival packet has one pair of shoes. One blanket, one hygiene packet, one solar lamp so they can stay warm because they were in the desert. Uh, Many of them... Uh, uh, facing desert or cold situations. If they're in Jordan, they face desert situations. If they're in Athens, they're in, they're in colder climates. Hats and sun protection, a raincoat, energy bars, and tea, period. That's it. And we have a desire to raise 2,800 of these, 2,800 survival kits for 50,000. We're not even making a drop in the bucket. We're just trying to push them a little bit further down the road to survival for a little bit longer. I, I don't know what, when it's going to be fixed. I don't know when the uh, when, when Siri is going to go back to normalcy and what normalcy will even look like and if they'll even be welcome back in. But I tell you, I can't watch these. I, I watch the news. I can't watch the news the same way. I can't, I can't see children the same way. I can't see adults the same way. I can't see parents the same way. We need a new perspective. Somebody sent me a poem not too long ago. To be honest with you, the first time I read it, I was almost mad. But I want to read it to you. But you've got to hear it all the way. Because we need to see refugees differently. They have no need of our help. So do not tell me. These haggard faces could belong to you or me. Should life have dealt a different hand, we need to see them for who they really are. Chancers and scroungers and layabouts and loungers with bombs on their sleeves, cut throats and thieves. They are not welcomed here. We should make them go back to where they came from. They cannot share our food, share our homes, share our countries. Instead, let us build a wall to keep them out. It is not okay to say these are people just like us. A place should only belong to those who are born there. Do not be so stupid to think that the world can be looked at another way. What a hard statement until you read it differently, until we see people differently. Let's read it from the bottom up. The world can be looked at another way. Do not be so stupid to think that. A place should only belong to those who are born there. These are people just like us. It is not okay to say, build a wall and keep them out. Instead, let us share our countries, our homes, our food. They cannot go back to where they came from. We should make them welcome here. They are not cutthroats and thieves with bombs up their sleeves and layabouts and loungers and chancers and scroungers. We need to see them for who they are. These haggard faces could belong to you or me. So do not tell me they have no need of our help. If we could learn to see a refugee differently, 
When you look at a refugee today, I pray you will see Jesus in them. Because Jesus was the great healer, was the great teacher, but he was also the great refugee. Which leads me to the final lesson we learn. Refugees are a part of God's redemption plan. God has a plan and it's packaged up in sadly, but yet beautifully in this refugee narrative. It's, it's, it's beautiful and tragic all at the same time because if you go on and you read in verse 15, it's as if God for hundreds of years had been planning and knowing that this was going to be a part of the story because it ends in this little section that we skip over so quickly, just three verses. It says, and, and remain there until the death of Herod, which was around 86. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So God had somehow in time, in plans, in his sovereignty, planned or allowed to happen, but yet to redeem it at the same time. Jesus being a refugee, going as a young child, his earliest memories as a refugee, being in this refugee first century camp, if you will, and living that lifestyle for an undetermined amount of time. Not because he wanted to, but because he had to. But in the midst of God's redemption plan, he actually planned for to him to come out of Egypt because it says in the book of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Israel, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The prophecy of that, the beauty of that, that out of this tragic moment, there would be this beautiful redemption. Out of this refugee status in Egypt, there would be the, the one savior of the world would come one day. I love it says in Acts 17, whenever G, when Paul was delivering his famous message at Mars Hill, he delivers this message in verse 26 and 27. I've read this so many times. It's my favorite message out of all Paul's messages, but I'll promise you this. I read it differently. I have a different perspective and I see it differently. Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind we're not different nations in the kingdom of God. We're one nation of mankind. To live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of the periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that God literally has in His sovereign plan, has this boundaries and places in which He has for you and I to live. He had for Jesus to live. He even has for the refugees to live to this day. Why would... Why would he allow that to happen? Why would he allow Jesus, the son of the Savior of the world, why would they allow him to go into Egypt and to run for his life? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In God's goodness, David Platt said, he turns even the tragedy of forced migration into the triumph of future salvation. 1968 years ago in Athens, Greece, Paul delivered that message. 1968 years today, we're faced with a challenge. To be a part of helping those refugees in Syria find their way 
to Jesus. And, you know, one of the things that, that, you, that if this is going to happen, we've got to stop seeing them as strangers and as aliens and as foreigners and as refugees, and we've got to start seeing them as people. And it's God's redemption plan in the people and what he wants to do through those people. And we've got to do this. We've got to start seeing ourselves as refugees. I remember I told you that word in the New Testament for refugee is stranger. Let me tell you another time when you or I are called strangers or refugees. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Strangers, the exact same word to the covenants of promise. The only way I know that we can move refugees to people is to give them a name, give them a face, and make them a part of our family. How can we move the refugees that are people and a part of God's redemption plan, how do we move them to persons of which God wants to do great things. Let's make them a part of our family. Let's make them a part of our family. They're not strangers any longer. If if you live in our house, there's a stocking hung by the chimney with care for your name, with your name on it. I want to challenge you to look across this stage, and I don't know how many are left from first gathering, but I want you to ask yourself, God, this Christmas Eve, This Christmas season, can I make an extra stocking and hang it by the chimney with care? Can I make a space in my family budget? Can I make a space in my life? Can I make a space in my heart for somebody that's over there that needs to know because I'm going to see Jesus in them and I'm going to give them a name and they're going to be a part of my family. So I challenge you, during our response song, this, this, this stage is open and you can come and, and you can take one. But the challenge is not just to empty the stage. The challenge today is to say, am I going to make refugees people, humans? And am I going to make a space in my life for them, whatever that means and whatever that looks like? Financially, I challenge you next Sunday, to bring back your Christmas offering in one of these stockings and be ready to drop it in the basket. Make it a part of your Christmas season and make a difference in somebody's life. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Neglected, forgotten. Seeking, longing, surviving. Our Savior was that. We were that, according to Ephesians. there are many people in this world that are coming to faith in Christ these days because they're realizing they're that as well. Father, you are incredible. The fact that you make yourself a refugee 
stranger. You make yourself an alien, a foreigner. For us, it's incredible to think about. And that, Father, you call us as your ambassadors to go and to open our lives and our families and our homes and our finances and our stories open to you, Lord, that that you can make strangers and aliens children of God. And we get to be a part of that. Lord, draw us in. Soften our hearts. And oh, dear God, help us. Help us to see your redemptive story in the face of every refugee. Lord, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? The altar is open. This is your time.